mentioned, it's Genesis chapter 47, starting at verse 28, going through to Genesis 48, verse 11. So starting on page 37 at Genesis 47, 28. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Well, let's pray, shall we? Our mighty God, we want to thank you for your word and thank you that uh, your word has the, uh, the power through your spirit to penetrate our hearts and to change our thinking. Father, we pray that as we consider your word now that we would see more clearly who you are and what your plan and purpose is. And uh, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Wouldn't it be nice? Uh, we all know the TV ad. There's the, the mum and the dad, <clears throat> the daughter, the house. And there's just one more thing, says the dad as he offers the envelope. It says, your mother and I, we'd, we'd like you to have this. And this, the house... It's all yours. It's one of those truly touching moments in Australian television, isn't it? Because we all feel that sense of the sacrificial love of the mum and the dad and of of the bursting sense of being loved and the joy of the daughter. And the bank doesn't own it anymore. No more mortgage. No more repayments, no more anxiety when the Reserve Bank meets to discuss interest rates. 
Now there is security. Now there is money for the other things of life. Now there is the future. Very touching. Until, of course, you then realise that it's actually an ad for an industry that robs people of their houses, but never mind, that's for another sermon, I guess. But we're drawn in, aren't we? We're drawn in because it, it targets and it touches that most cherished symbol of Australian security, the block of land and the house. Now imagine a man in the ancient world, Jacob, an elderly man who has to some degree enjoyed some worldly security, but now in his old age, as the head of a large household of 70 or more family members and, and many servants, many people at work, as the head of a large household, he now stands to lose his security. He now stands to lose it all. I'm not talking about having the family home repossessed, no. Jacob and his household are living in the tight grip of a most dreadful drought. It hasn't rained for so long that there would be some of the children born into his household, if they stepped outside here now, they would wonder, what is all this water doing falling from the sky? They would have never seen rain. Drought is the enemy of security because it dries up life at its very roots, quite literally so. No water means no food. No food means no life. It means death. And it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be the person who is responsible for the lives of all of these people and to daily look out upon the parched ground and the decaying carcasses. Now, so far, this family has managed to survive because the sons of Jacob had gone from Canaan down to Egypt. And from Egypt they returned with, with grain, grain that had been stored up in Egypt over seven years before the drought and grain which had been given to them by the governor of Egypt. But now that grain is finished and yet the drought was not finished. And as we saw just the week before Easter, when Jacob's sons went down to Egypt a second time, they came to a dramatic realisation. They learnt a dramatic truth. And that was that the governor of Egypt, Zanaphath Paneah, was in fact someone from their past. He was in fact their brother Joseph. Now today we come almost to the end of our series on Genesis, as I mentioned earlier, almost because the plan next week is to wrap it up and to <clears throat> give the overall picture and see how Genesis fits in with the rest of the Bible. But in these chapters today, and we're looking at chapters 46 through to chapter 50, the front and central issue for Jacob is security. Because in the dust bowl of Canaan, he didn't have much of it. And as he faced the stark possibility of the starvation of his people, he now finds hope 
there now is hope. You see, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, respected Joseph, the governor. And so in chapter 45, uh, verses 7 through to 18, the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, invited the family of Jacob to leave Canaan and to come, to come to Egypt. And Pharaoh would give them some of the most productive land in all of Egypt and there, said Pharaoh, they could enjoy the fat of the lamb. Wouldn't it be nice? From the very opposite of security, famine, hunger, death, to the ancient world's very symbol of security, food and land ownership on the delta of the Nile River. And yet for Jacob, it was not, it was not quite a no-brainer to take up the offer. He took up the offer, but it was not quite a no-brainer. Now, why was that? Well, it was because Canaan was the land which God had promised to, to the descendants of Abraham. And you remember those promises, don't you? We've been, ever since Genesis chapter 12, we've been, the story's been framed by those promises, the promise of a people, a land, and a blessing. And perhaps Jacob might have remembered that there was a time when he was young, when he was living under the household of his father Isaac, when there was also a drought in Canaan, when God had said to Isaac, no, do not go to Egypt. But this time it's different. And as he tentatively started the journey in chapter 46 and verses 1 to 4, in chapter 46 verses 1 to 4, God spoke to him. Now let me read those verses for you if you'd like to look at those in your Bibles on page 36. It says, so Israel, now remember his name has been changed by God from Jacob to Israel and the names are used interchangeably. So Israel set out with all that was his and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. You see what's going on there? What, what is God doing for Jacob? He's, he's giving him the nod, isn't he? He's giving him the green light. He's saying, actually, Jacob, at this point, this is part of my plan for you to go to Egypt. But will Egypt be permanent? Will Egypt be their home? And the answer in those verses is no. It would have been tempting, though, wouldn't it? I, a Christian brother... Um, was talking to me once. He'd actually retired into uh, the mid-north coast and he was kind of joking and he said to me, Scott, it's hard to look forward to heaven when you're living in a place like this. Jokingly. Well, it might also be hard to look forward to the land which God had said would be flowing with milk and honey when in chapter 47, verses 1 to 12, 
Pharaoh has made this promise to Joseph, the, the son of Jacob. And let's pick up some of these promises in chapter 47, verse 5. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know any of them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Go down to verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, in the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's households with food according to the number of their children. Now, wouldn't it be nice? Although it wasn't all that nice for the other people in Egypt. You see, whereas land was now given to Jacob, many Egyptians now found that they lost their land. When Joseph had collected the grain over a period of seven years, the 20% tax on grain, and stored it all up as tax, when it came to actually distribute the grain, he didn't just give it back to people. He sold it to them. And as the drought kept grinding on, people then found that they had nothing left with which to buy the grain. Nothing except their land and their lives. Chapter 47, verse 18. When that year was over... They came to him, that is the Egyptians came to Joseph the following year and they said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Now the Egyptians reckoned that Pharaoh had come from the realms, the realm of the gods. Uh, the Egyptians thought of uh, Pharaoh as being a god. And so, in theory, uh, all of the people of Egypt already belonged to Pharaoh, all of the land of Egypt already belonged to Pharaoh. But now, in this grinding drought, what had been theory became reality. As the people sold their, gave their land and gave their very bodies in servitude to Pharaoh in exchange for life-giving grain. That was a dangerous reality for Egypt, very dangerous for one person to own everything. But it's not the main concern of the passage, because the main concern here is the security and the hope of Jacob. In fact, that's what, that's what the back end of Genesis has been all about. I mean, if you've been following the sermons over the few weeks before Easter, you'd be forgiven for, for thinking that the back end of Genesis has all been about Joseph, about the favouritism which he enjoyed, about his being enslaved by his brothers, about his uh, rise to power in Egypt, about the reconciliation and the forgiveness that's taken place with his family. But in chapter 37, verse 2, just before we were actually introduced to Joseph, 
The writer of Genesis says, this is the account of Jacob. It's about Jacob's family. It's about Jacob's future. It's about Jacob's hope. And it's all bound up, though, in his sons, especially in Joseph. Now, a couple of weeks back, we saw that uh, living in Egypt, particularly with the promotion that uh, Joseph had received in Egypt, that Joseph was becoming Egyptianized. <laughs> that uh, Joseph had chosen to forget his past and who could blame him and to accept his new identity as an Egyptian, an Egyptian ruler who wore Egyptian clothes, who was married to an Egyptian wife, whose father was an Egyptian priest. And Joseph, who now had an Egyptian name, he'd become Egyptianized, hadn't he? So much so that his brothers didn't recognize him when they first saw him. But now, with his father, Jacob living in Egypt for 17 years, Jacob drew his son back to his true identity. And we see this most clearly in a conversation between the two men just before Jacob died in chapter 48, verses 1 to 4, where it says, Sometime later Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and he said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. And I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now, by mentioning this, what is Jacob doing? Well, he's reminding Joseph of the promise of God. He's reminding Joseph of the promise which was first delivered to Abraham, and then had been delivered to Isaac, and had been delivered to Jacob as well that their true land, their true home, their true future is not Egypt, but the land God has promised, the land of Canaan. Secondly, in verses 5 through 11, Jacob then adopts the two sons of Joseph. Now, you remember Ephraim and Manasseh, the, the two sons whose names encapsulated uh, Joseph's feelings that, uh, that he's forgotten his past and that he's thankful for the fruitfulness in the land of Egypt. And in verses 5 to 11, Jacob now adopts the two sons. He adopts Manasseh and Ephraim and he says to Joseph, they're no longer your sons, they're now my sons. Now that might seem a very strange thing to us for to hear that he had done that, especially on his deathbed. But what it means is this, that these two sons uh, will enjoy the privileges 
of being direct sons of Jacob, and that is that when God finally gives Israel possession of the land, that because of that, the, the family of Joseph will enjoy a double share. A double share. Now think about when the land was finally occupied and they split up the land amongst all of the tribes. Uh, there's no land set aside called the tribe of Joseph, is there? <laughs> but there is the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. And interestingly, the land allocated to those two tribes, it's the biggest chunk of land of, uh, amongst all of the other tribes. So that's why we don't have the tribe of Joseph in the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the tribe, the tribes of Ephraim and the tribes of Manasseh. And of course, the Levitical tribe, the descendants of Levi, were never allocated land because of their role as priests. But then in verses 15 and 16, Jacob reminds Joseph of who God is. Let's pick that up. Chapter 48, verse 15. Then he blessed Joseph and he said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel, and he's referred earlier to the angel as being God, who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. See, what's he saying to Joseph? He's saying, you're not Egyptian. You're one of us. Uh, you, 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 our hope is your hope. Because our God is your God. You're a descendant of Abraham. You are a child of the promise. And that means that our future is your future as well. And then, as if to back that up, in verse 22, he bequeaths to Joseph an actual block of land that he already owns in Canaan. He doesn't own much land in Canaan, but he does own the side of a hill in Canaan. And he says, that block of land, son, that's yours. You'll get the title deeds to them, to it one day. And so, friends, as we move on in chapter 49, on his deathbed, he gathers all of his sons around in order to pronounce his final blessings. And for some, there is good news. For others, there is bad news. Uh, next week, I actually plan to come back and to draw out some of the good news from that particular section. So we'll look at that next week. But now in Egypt, Jacob is close, close to death. Now, this week, we have remembered with uh, sadness that there are many thousands of Australians who are buried in uh, cemeteries and fields in places like France and Turkey and other places. Uh, we've remembered that with sadness because, firstly, of why they're actually buried there, but sadness also because those places are not home. They're not their home. 
we like the idea of being buried in the place which we call home. And so after 17 years in Egypt, where did Jacob call home? You know, Jacob had lived a life on the move, hadn't he? As we've tracked his life through Genesis, we saw that he, that he was a man who had to flee from his brother Esau. And then we saw that he had to escape from his uncle Laban. And uh, now he, he's been a refugee, uh, having to uh, escape into Egypt from drought. And although he enjoyed some degree of prosperity throughout his lifetime, he never really had been settled. He led a life which was a life of conflict and struggle. He lived in hope of something better. But through those struggles, he came to find that hope in the promises of God to Abraham. That one day that Abraham's descendants would be flourishing, that they would be as many as the stars in the sky, that they would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, that you wouldn't be able to count them and that they would be living in God's land under God's blessing. And friends, what we see here is that even in death, Jacob wanted to be a part of that. And so in chapter 50... In an elaborate Egyptian state funeral and in response to his expressed wishes, Jacob was buried in a cave alongside Abraham and Sarah, alongside Isaac and Rebekah and alongside his wife Leah, a cave in the land that God had promised the land which would eventually become the home of Israel. And that land which represents what we look forward to, that is a better land, a heavenly land. Jacob never saw God's promises fulfilled. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that faith is being sure of what we hope for, that faith is being certain of that which we do not yet see. And to have faith means that we are people who hear the word of God and believe what we hear and act upon what we hear. To have faith means that we base our lives on the promises of God even though we do not yet see those things. Promises which are encapsulated in the gospel. The promise that the death of Jesus has indeed paid the penalty for our sin. The promise that the resurrection of Jesus has in fact cleared the way, cleared the path so that we too can have access to a heavenly home, a home which is eternal, a home which is for anyone who, like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is willing to trust God at his word. Do you trust God at his word? If so, 
then it ought to affect the way that we live our lives. Uh, we, of course, need to live in this world, but not of the world. We need to live in this world in the sense that we need our jobs, we need our houses, we need our cars, we need our bank balances, we need all of the resources that are necessary for life. But where is our security? In these things of the world, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal? Or is our security in the better land, where we will spend not our mere 80 or 90 years, but where we will spend all of eternity, for all time? And if that is so, then our heart will be there as well, and it will affect our lives. I like to think of it that in this life uh, we're not like title deed holders. Uh, we're more like backpackers. <laughs> you know, we've got the things that we need for life but we're just passing through. We're not embedded in this life. We don't have all of our hope and all of our investment in this life. Uh, we'll hold loosely to the things of this world and we'll invest our uh, our resources, we'll invest our time and our energy and our prayers and our obedience and our very lives in those things which have heavenly significance, in those things which are the things of God, in those things which represent where our hope, where our security is to be found. Just like Jacob. But what about his son Joseph? I mean, it's, you know, it sounds like it's easier to hope in heaven when things aren't going all that crash hot for you here in this life. But Joseph had everything going for him. I mean, sure, he'd been through some very tough times, but now he was very, very well settled. Second in command of Egypt. Married with great kids. Living in a palace. Reconciled to his brothers surrounded by status and prestige and all of the great wealth of Egypt. In fact, if there were lotto ads back then, they'd show someone living the life of Joseph and saying, wouldn't it be nice? Unimaginable worldly security. But as it turns out, it was not Joseph's security. In the very last verses of Genesis, as Joseph himself is now about to die, he's got a few words for his brothers as they gather around his deathbed. And he says to them, Egypt is not our home, not theirs, not his. And he says to them that one day God was going to come and God was going to take them out of Egypt and into their home. The writer of Hebrews says that he prophesied, he foresaw the exodus. But when God does that, says Joseph to his brothers, when God takes us out of this land and brings us back into the land which we call home, he says, I want you to take my bones and take me there because that's my home. That's my hope. That's my future 
It would take some time for that to happen, by the way. Uh, about 400 years before his bones were taken out of Egypt and taken into the land of Canaan. And it would be Moses who God would raise up. Moses who would carry the bones of Joseph out of Egypt. And that, friends, is for another time, another sermon series on the book of Exodus, but this is the end of Genesis. Next week, we'll do an overview and wrap up the whole series and then we'll move on from there. But let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Gracious Father, we thank you that you have given uh, your servants a, a, a hope, a heavenly hope. We thank you that that is uh, demonstrated very tangibly in uh, the, uh, the land of Canaan and as we will see in future time that you uh, saved your people out of Egypt and brought them across the Jordan and planted them in that in that home which for us represents the salvation that we've found in Jesus who has brought us out of uh, slavery to sin and brought us into uh, the reality of the heavenly home our future we pray for ourselves Lord God that our lives would demonstrate the reality that we don't call this world our uh, permanent home. But we see ourselves as being uh, passing through because we're looking forward to something which is much better. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>